Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Philip Rucker and Carol Lennig about their book, I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's Catastrophic Final Year. Carol has been a national reporter at the Washington Post since 2000, covering the White House. She is a three-time Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and an on-air political analyst for NBC News. Philip is the senior Washington correspondent at the Washington Post, where he has led coverage of the Trump administration. He, too, is the winner of the Pulitzer Prize and the George Polk Award. He is an on-air political analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. Phil and Carol, thank you for joining That Said. Thanks for having us. So your book, I Alone Can Fix It, Donald Trump's Catastrophic Final Year, is a breathtaking account of the events of, of 2020. And I think that the detail of your scholarship is just evident page by page. And I'd like to, before we get into the book, have you tell us a little bit about yourselves, how you came to be uh, the journalists that you are, and then we'll turn to why did you write this book? I think we've said a a few times, Phil and I were pretty exhausted after writing our first book, A Very Stable Genius, uh, which we felt did a pretty darn good job of chronicling um, the presidency, but, but more importantly, getting inside the room to explain how Donald Trump operates uh, behind closed doors and also what motivates him, what made him tick and gave a sense of that presidency. We were pretty beat after doing that work and did not intend to write again about him. But somewhere around the spring and then eventually the summer of 2020, we realized along with our publisher in discussions that we had to go back to this subject. The year was so lethal, so consequential, so historic. Even in the century, it, it stands out. And so we had to go back and out of a sense of duty and for history, figure out what, again, happened behind the scenes as the president, you know, poorly handled a lethal pandemic and a racial reckoning in our country, and also sought to undermine and topple um, our democratic institutions and even our election. Bill? Yeah, you know, I, uh, Carol and I came to this reporting for these books from, from different paths, of course. Um, you know, Carol is a longtime investigative reporter at The Post. I was covering the White House um, for The Post, but, you know, we ended up teaming up for both of these books, and I think it produced a really uh, a great body of, of reporting and, and some new revelations, and we're really proud to share that. I, I thought it was terrific in, in uh, respect of the revelations when you thought you knew everything, then you open your book and you realize you didn't know the, the half of it. I'd like to begin, if we can, sort of in the end. Your, your The epilogue of your book is an interview you had with Donald Trump in Mar-a-Lago in March of this year. And uh, if you would, can you tell us how that came to pass Glad to, you know, it is a little bit of a surprise to us because as you probably know, Donald Trump 
refused to grant us an interview, declined, refused, whatever the right word is, when we sought out uh, his information and his view of things for our first book, uh, Very Stable Genius. Uh, the second time around, it only took an email from Phil to the uh, handler, essentially, for the former president. And he was um, pretty much excited to greet us and to have us down to Mar-a-Lago. I have to say we also were pretty surprised because he'd called us a lot of um, unpleasant names in our reporting on the presidency, um, you know, low low rate um, uh, <laughs> stone cold losers, I think was his other term for us both. After we finished our book, he accused us of a lot of fake news. But when he was the former president, he was eager to have us come down and eager for that audience. So do you have a sense, Phil, perhaps, was he was he playing you? I mean, was there uh, some sense that you had to be careful of, which was to say, wait a second here, what's, what's his motive? Why now and not then? I mean, certainly he he might have thought he was trying to play us, but we did, we were not played. <laughs> uh, we're we're pretty um, scrupulous reporters, and you know we went down there to hear his perspective on these events and and to challenge him in some areas and uh, and, and get his thoughts, try to get inside his head, uh, if it were, and and it became a really compelling epilogue to the book, but it was not. Uh, determinative of the narrative or of our conclusions, which of course were based on on the reporting we did with more than 140 administration officials and cabinet members and advisors to the president, most of whom, by the way, um, are more credible and truthful narrators than the former president himself. Right, and I wasn't suggesting that he he succeeded in playing. Right, rather that was his intention. And I asked that question. So, um, Carol, can you tell us about the scene where the interview took place, the pomp and circumstance that surrounded it? You know, we had no idea, Michael, how theatrical uh, this this interview would be. Phil and I are used to interviewing people in their offices or conference rooms, sometimes for the purpose of this book, in their dens or their living rooms, um, someplace pretty private. But Donald Trump asked us to visit him at his lobby in Mar-a-Lago. And it's a beautiful room, but it's also a very public room. And a series of guests are starting to arrive for the dinner hour at the club and trickling in slowly. The interview is arranged by by Donald Trump for 5 p.m. Those guests are there um, sort of sheepishly waving hello to him, calling out to him, kind of, some of them kissing his ring. Individuals are are eager to hear and see him. And then, you know, we, we realize that perhaps this is really arranged both for the president's, the former president's benefit and also for our benefit. We're getting to see essentially how much he is beloved and how popular he is at his club. And, uh, the guests are getting to see that Donald Trump is still sought after by Washington based reporters and national reporters. After a very long to an hour and 45 minute interview, the, the former president then steps to the threshold about to enter the patio that Mary, uh, Marjorie Merriweather Post designed at her beautiful house. And 
As he crosses it, the music begins for Hail to the Chief, and the group surrounded for dinner uh, jumps to their feet in a standing ovation. It, it is essentially a little bit like Donald Trump's Brigadoon or his, his beautiful exile. Uh, in this club, he is still king. Phil, you, I'd like to start with you by asking about the interview itself. You cover off several important points with him. And I think the first point I'd like to ask you about is his fixation on his election loss. We're here now um, several months after his November loss and after the January 20th transition, and he still can't let it go. Like a person with OCD, he is clinging to his story. So can you talk us through what he's saying about this loss? You know, your characterization is exactly right. He was fixated on the 2020 election and his loss, although he wouldn't acknowledge to us that he had lost. And and in fact, he would bring up the election results again and again, but he, he told the story with just one lie after another. It was like he had this kind of dystopian alternative reality in his head. For example, he, he brought up the state of Arizona and he said, everybody knows I won Arizona. Well, Joe Biden won Arizona, uh, but the, the numbers don't show that Trump won Arizona, but he has uh, either convinced himself or, or said it so many times that it appears convincing to his supporters uh, that he won that state, that there was this fraud in, in, in Fulton County that turned uh, Georgia uh, unfairly to Biden, that there was fraud in Michigan, Pennsylvania, just state after state. Um, he continued to make an argument uh, for voter fraud, citing examples that have been debunked and disproven uh, and that that, you know, for which his lawyers had no evidence to present in court. Right. And in fact, what's interesting is that we are now beginning to see the judges in those states where these lawsuits were filed beginning to issue sanctions orders against the attorneys. In Colorado, they um, have a decision by the uh, magistrate that requires the lawyers who filed the, what he called specious lawsuits to pay the attorney's fees um, uh, of the other side, having to have to respond to these things. But yet he said, I think your quote in the book was, this was the greatest fraud ever perpetrated in this country as it was rigged and stolen. It was both. It was a combination. And Bill Barr didn't do anything about it. It's a, it's become like a mantra for him. That's absolutely right. And it, what's fascinating about it is that at least what was fascinating to me and to Phil was how many people who Donald Trump has turned to over and over again as his loyal aides and advisors and touchstones, people who really were interested in giving him good counsel and cared deeply about his presidency, cared deeply about him getting reelected. How many of them essentially tried to give Trump the truth and tried to give him some sort of, if not tough love, some moderately gentle love by saying, Mr. President, in the case of Bill Barr, all of these allegations of a, a rigged election or corrupted election or fraud in the tallies, 
we've looked into them. I have an entire Department of Justice. We've looked into them, and, and they're all BS. They just don't hold water, and they don't move the needle. Maybe there will, he said, I'm sure there was some fraud, but it is not the kind that would change the vote so that you would be president. You lost. Hope Hicks tries to counsel Donald Trump after the election and after he refuses to concede. And, you know, to her credit, she gently tries to figure out a way to get him to either see that the evidence doesn't exist or really stress test the evidence he's being fed by conspiracy theorists who want to tell him what he wants to hear. Hmm. And, and Donald Trump basically kicks both of them to the curb. In another aspect of the interview, you ask about the storming of the Capitol and you asked him what he hoped would happen, what he expected of his supporters. And I found his answer to that stunning. So, Phil, maybe you can walk us through a little bit that portion of the conversation. Yeah. You know, Trump said that what he wanted his supporters to do when he told them to march on the Capitol uh, was exactly uh, what they wanted. And, you know, we all saw on on video, on live television, what it is that they wanted. They were chanting to hang Mike Pence. Uh, They were trying to break into the Capitol and did break into the Capitol using weapons and violent force. Uh, They were fighting police officers. Uh, Some people lost their lives. I mean, it was an ugly, uh, chaotic, violent and lethal scene at the Capitol, unlike uh, any we've seen in the modern history of this country and you know, it was really chilling to hear Trump say that what he wanted was what his supporters wanted. And what's interesting, too, Carol, is that, that he said, and I'll quote you, you wrote, he says, in all fairness, the Capitol Police were ushering people in. The Capitol, <laughs> the Capitol Police were very friendly. They were hugging and kissing. You don't see that, but there's plenty of tape on that. Uh, I haven't yet seen that tape, but perhaps you could talk about your response <laughs> to that observation. You know, it, it's funny because, I mean, Donald Trump seemed so persuaded and convinced of what he was saying, which either means he's a really good liar or he's really good at convincing himself of something for which there is little to no evidence. Uh, Phil and I both were sort of stunned, jaws, you know, that we were putting back up to our teeth um, as he described something that never happened. Um, This was a loving crowd that came out uh, in full force to support him and eventually stormed the Capitol, that they were hugging and kissing, that Capitol Police officers, as you described, were warmly ushering these folks in. The only shred of reality that this is attached to is that there were, there were one and two single or double instances where officers that were the Capitol Police put on like a MAGA hat. There is one who's under investigation for doing that while the crowds were swarming around the hill. And there is an instance in which uh, a Capitol police officer basically gives up on trying to hold this barricade alone at one corner of the property and lets the crowds through because there are hundreds and behind them thousands and he is one of you know a handful of officers standing guard at this location so it would have been you know potentially 
fatal to continue to sort of hold that wall. So nothing like what Donald Trump says happened. We all know what happened. And and strikingly, we all heard it told in the under oath testimony of Officer Gannell of the Capitol uh, Police, as he described, you know, feeling like he was losing oxygen because he was slammed by so many protesters, thousands against hundreds of officers, as he was pressed body to body with some of these individuals, as the protesters were unleashing their bear, bear spray at full force into the faces of officers holding them back with bike rack. Uh, you remember, five people died that day. It was It was not a loving crowd. Right. And I think a fourth police officer took his life in suicide just a day or two ago. Um, yes, yesterday. The The thing that I found interesting in as we move forward into his interview is that he had absolutely no regrets about January 6th. He seemed still to believe that this was an appropriate response. But, Phil, you do write that he rarely expresses misgivings or, or regrets, but he did express to you guys regret in response to the Seattle, Portland, Black Lives Matters um, moment that we experienced um, this past summer. Can you tell us about the regret that he felt for that? That's exactly right. You know, Trump said that the one regret he had from his time, uh, his, his final year in office, was that he had not uh, deployed the active duty military troops in America's cities in response to the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, uh, specifically, you know, Portland, Seattle, Minneapolis, Washington, the places where, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of, of activists were taking to the streets, exercising their First Amendment rights to protest uh, racial injustice in law enforcement. And Trump wanted to sick uh, military forces on them to look strong. He thought it would make him uh, appear in control and command. It, it would fortify his strength heading into the reelection in November. And, you know, our reporting from around that time shows uh, day after day, he was pressuring his advisors, including the defense secretary, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the attorney general, pressuring them to deploy military in response to the BLM protests. And they were withstanding that. And, and they said, you know, sir, this is not an insurrection. You can't invoke the Insurrection Act because that's not what we have here in the streets. And furthermore, they argued to the president that, you know, federalizing the response, especially with military, would only add fuel to the fire, would make uh, would make these demonstrations uh, that much more sort of hot and, and potentially violent. And, uh, and so Trump ultimately did not uh, deploy the military, but he told us that he regretted uh, not having done so, and if he could have done it over again, he would have. Yeah, it's interest. It's an interesting perspective on that last year. You write that he recognized that he had two presidencies, one pre-pandemic and one post-pandemic. And I'm going to read you something you wrote, Carol, and then I'd like you to tell us about it. You write, I think it would be if George Washington came back from the dead and he chose Abraham Lincoln as his vice president, I think they would have had a very hard time beating me. This is in his pre-pandemic presidency. So his view of himself in his first three years, we talk about it a bit in a very stable genius, but his 
view of himself is that George Washington can come back from the dead, choose Abraham Lincoln as his vice president, and they're not going to beat Donald Trump because he is the best thing that this country has ever seen. Can you talk a little bit about that, Carol or, or Phil, whomever? Yeah, I mean, I think what's so striking about this is, again, to Phil's earlier point about the alternate reality in which Donald Trump is living, you know, the crowds were, you know, loving who came to storm the Capitol. The, you know, he won the election and it was rigged despite the advice of his longtime supporter, Attorney General Bill Barr. And he also shares that he views himself as perhaps one of the very best presidents, American presidents in history. Now, I think you know that American historians have already begun sort of cataloging the events of the Trump presidency and conclude that it is one of the worst presidencies in American history. It was uh, chaotic. It was lethal. It was irresponsible. It was often breaking and bending the law. Um, it, 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 meaning Donald Trump, led it in such a way that was authoritarian and very far from being a leader with the American people and their best interests at heart. So it's, it's striking the way he sees the presidency. It's so different than the way sort of objective observers do. Yeah. And Phil, in the, in the two part presidency that he attributes the pre pandemic and the post pandemic, again, to the point of he never sees anything he did as incorrect. He said to you, we did a great job on COVID. It hasn't been recognized. I was very tough on restricting travel from China and Europe against all the wishes of my top medical people. Now, maybe you could talk to that. It's factually in error, but again, it's this startling state of mind that that I think the interview brings out uh, so eloquently. Yeah, it, it actually is an error. Um, you know, our reporting shows that a number of Trump's advisors, uh, you know, al- although there were ongoing discussions over the course of several days about those travel bans, both uh, to China and to Europe, uh, that by the time the president had to actually make a decision, uh, many of his advisors, including some of the scientific and health experts on the task force, uh, were in agreement with the travel restrictions that the president uh, ended up deciding to adopt. So it's not as if he was defying uh, the will of, of the experts around the table. You right. know, his his broader point, though, about um, not getting enough credit is really striking because he gets plenty of credit for the way his administration handled COVID. And, and that's why he lost off. He, he lost reelection because the American people uh, thought it, it was poorly handled and, and blamed Trump for that. He got credit for the mistakes that the federal government made. Um, but he feels like he didn't make any mistakes and like it should have been celebrated, um, what he did. And he does get credit, by the way, for the, the swift, uh, development and approval and ultimately distribution of the coronavirus vaccines. But, um, you know, that, that's really the only high point in, in his handling of the pandemic. Yeah, and Carol, he, he is still very critical of Dr. Fauci, calls him overrated, a great promoter, just call me Tony, he, he <laughs> snarkily uh, says, um, and he says of uh, Fauci, he was wrong on everything. Essentially, 
if I, Trump, had just not listened to Fauci and used my big scientific brain, um, everything would have been much better. And then he laments Fauci's higher popularity rating than than his. This is such an interesting thing about Donald Trump because, you know, Tony Fauci really didn't sort of get in Donald Trump's face and dispute him uh, on a regular basis. He was uh, he was pretty gentle about his disputes on the medical advice, I have to say, during the presidency, with what we understand from our reporting, the goal being he wanted to stay in office and make sure that he was doing something of value for the Americans and for public health and feared what would happen if he were replaced. But he wasn't a confrontational with Trump. What really bothered Trump was that Tony Fauci Tony Fauci's ratings were higher. <laughs> you know that the ratings are the most important thing to, to Donald Trump. And somebody was doing better than him on that score. And it was very clear and brought to his attention. And that's when he began to sour on Fauci. I don't think that would have happened. For example, he really, really um, said maybe the only person he told us that he still valued and considered in high esteem was Robert Redfield, his CDC director, also disagreed with with President Trump many times about masks, about the vaccine, about the convalescent plasma and its inability to actually perform miracles in treatment for people with COVID. But but just but just not as popular as Fauci. So he didn't have the same problem with the former president. Fauci got uh, Trump's show canceled. (laughs) To some degree, that's right. So before we move into the substance of a few of these topics, the pandemic and the racial reckoning and the insurrection, I'd like to ask you to answer what you consider to be the most important sort of lessons that we should, as readers of this book, take away? Takeaway lessons here. I, and by the way, I think it's really important for people, even if you feel like you were watching the news and paying attention every single day in 2020 and lived it, it's important to pause now and, and look back and, and sort of fully understand what all was going on behind the scenes, because this is such an inc- incredibly critical year um, in our history. And it also has current event ramifications if you consider that Trump may run for president again uh, and, and could well get elected uh, again in 2024. But the, the biggest takeaway, I think, for us was was how close the country really came to um, to a profound change and, and really the collapse of democracy. Uh, you know, we learned in our reporting for this book something that that nobody knew in real time, which is that General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the top military official uh, in the U.S. government, feared that the president, because of his rhetoric, because of his challenging of the election results, would actually potentially uh, issue an order as commander in chief to use the military uh in orchestrating a coup to stay in power despite the will of the people. And that's a pretty extraordinary thing to think about. It's not something that's happened before uh, in our history, but it was so serious that the General Milley um, thought it to be a real possibility and actually, uh, you know, had plans with the other Joint Chiefs, the heads of the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, uh, to figure out what they would do if they got an order that was unconstitutional or dangerous for the country, what they would do uh, to try to block the president 
from executing it, and they were prepared to resign one by one. Carol, another lesson perhaps that I think we should think about, to, to Phil's point of this gives us some distance from the presidency, and it's important to have that distance to analyze things, which is maybe a lesson or takeaway here is that notwithstanding how worried his advisors were of this possible coup or coup-like effort, the House remained standing, as you describe in, in, in the book at the very end, um, the plane landed. And so I think there's something there to the resiliency of the guardrails of our system that's worth remembering, too. That's so right. Yeah, I mean, one thing that Phil and I um, learned from many of the people we interviewed, and remember, we interviewed more than 140 people who had a front seat to history. They either were standing at Donald Trump's shoulder throughout this catastrophic 2020, or they were advisors to the president, or they were working in his administration or friends. And these individuals, many of them told us that even those who were very, very supportive of Donald Trump's presidency and his agenda told us that if he had been uh, more disciplined, more strategic in his planning, that his undermining of democracy could have actually been much more damaging, much more perilous. But his short-term strategies, the way he basically was trying to win the news cycle every day, every hour, let's let's win the morning, let's win the evening, so to speak, you know, that kind of PR messaging that he was engaged in wasn't very successful in really wrapping hold of the country. Just to make a comparison, you know, Dick Cheney, or Lyndon Johnson, incredibly organized, know where all the levers of government are, knew exactly where the levers needed to be pushed and how hard to get done what they wanted to get done, and were amazingly, stunningly effective. If, uh, you know, if Donald Trump had had Dick Cheney or Lyndon Johnson's strategic skills, these sources told us uh, things could have been much more um Perilous. I understand that Rupert Murdoch, the owner of Fox News, News um, Corp, had advised Trump that he should adopt a wartime president posture, referencing FDR or Churchill. We have nothing to fear but fear itself and, and rally the country. Is this a lesson Trump should have come away with? You know, it certainly is a lesson he could have come away with politically speaking. And, you know, I can't speak to any conversations he may or may not have had with Rupert Murdoch at the time. But uh, we report in a book that that some of his advisors, including the former New Jersey governor, Chris Christie, were trying to impress upon Trump uh, not just the imperative, but the political opportunity in communicating truth to the American people and being a leader at a moment of uncertainty and fear and crisis. And you know, taking a, a backseat in terms of his ego and trusting science, following the experts, uh, leading, getting out in the country and, and, and leaning into the crisis and not trying to do the happy talk or the lies or the, you know, exaggerations of how good everything's going to be, but, but just speak truth. And it's something that worked, uh, for George W. Bush after 9-11. It worked for Christie at a state level in New Jersey after Hurricane Sandy and it politically 
very well may have worked for Trump had he followed that advice, but he obviously didn't. But so, Carol, what did you get a sense? I mean, it seems like you you know this man pretty well. None of us is a psychiatrist, um, and it's not ours to psychoanalyze. But do you have a sense um, of why he was so obstinate, why he refused to follow this advice? Why did he marginalize his his scientists? You know, it, it, it's very sad to look back on it, honestly, and also to sit with some of the people, as Phil and I did, in these hours and hours of interviews um, and, and have them retell those early moments, moments that really were the difference between hundreds of thousands of deaths and a far smaller number. Those early decisions that were made uh, had catastrophic consequences because remember the virus was was a mystery in some respects to the american scientists at the cdc they were grappling with is this sars is it like sars what's going on here and they didn't have information because the chinese government uh the people's republic of china was not letting them in and Unfortunately, Donald Trump was obsessed with basically one thing, the stock market. It had been one of his number one ways of holding on to not just the, the, the base of folks who felt culturally left behind, those voters, those core voters who supported him, but also well-to-do, well-heeled, you know, financiers and businessmen and, and lawyers who wanted to see their wealth continue to grow. So the stock market was really important. And when Nancy Messonnier of the CDC announces to the public through a group of reporters at a news conference that people are going to have to start realizing that this virus is going to change people's daily lives, that we're going to have to make dramatic changes. When she does that and the stock market tanks, Trump's sort of toolkit is ill prepared for that all he's thinking about is let me get this economy back on track keep her away from the microphone keep the bad news away from the public and unfortunately it's just a a tragic decision on his part again in his same mode of let me win the news cycle today let me win the news cycle this hour let me keep as phil described it this happy talk going um if, to be honest, if he had instead listened to his medical advisors, followed their advice, asked people to wear masks, demanded that President Xi allow a CDC team into China, so many things could have gone so much better. In the book by Brian Stelter, Hoax, which is the relationship between Trump and Fox News and that cycle, He writes that by mid-autumn, with the death toll rising, Fox executives tell um, Trump essentially that their audience didn't want to hear of the dangers of coronavirus anymore, period, end story. And Fox essentially begins to stop covering it. CNN, Brian reports, utters the word coronavirus twice as often as does Fox um, in this critical period where deaths are really mounting. So was this Fox-Trump feedback loop also 
you know, part of the reasons that explains the way Trump failed to act in the face of this? He didn't think his base sort of wanted to hear it anymore. You know, there was a Trump feedback or a Fox feedback loop throughout all four years of the Trump presidency on virtually every issue. You know, he was addicted to television, as we all know, uh, but he liked to tune in to Tucker Carlson's show and Sean Hannity's show, especially, but also Laura Ingraham's show um, in the evenings on Fox to get a feel for what his base was listening to. And he had an outsized view of the power of Fox News, because keep in mind, you know, at the biggest Fox show gets maybe three million on a good night, four million people watching. Trump's base is tens of millions of people. But he thought if he could listen to what Tucker Carlson was saying, what Sean Hannity was saying, and then channel it and spit it back out to his base, that was a, a way to keep them engaged uh, and, and, and stay abreast of, you know, what his base wanted. And in turn, the host, but also the executives at Fox had an extraordinary influence on the president's thinking, on his policies, on the rhetoric that he was going to use, on the issues that he would be talking about. And, you know, you saw that in, um, in, in the way Fox and then the president would characterize some of the Black Lives Matter protests uh, in the summer of 2020. But you also saw it a lot with the coronavirus throughout the course of the pandemic. And then, of course, with the election and the aftermath. Right. And Carol, there's a story that you tell, and maybe you can retell it, and then we'll let's let's move on from the pandemic, which is um, Secretary of Health and Human Services Azor is calling down to Trump in, in, in January to try to get the president's attention so that they could sort of marshal their forces to, to address the pandemic. And Trump, as a recurring thing, over and over goes back to discussing vaping and e-cigarettes. So can you tell a little bit about that? Because I thought that was pretty stunning. It's it's really also fits perfectly in that moment of like bad decisions at the beginning of the virus and it's it's sort of lethal march across our country. Um, Azar realizes that the virus is after getting a briefing from many of his CDC directors and from Fauci and Redfield, he realizes that this is extremely transmissible and they're finding uh, human to human transmission is, is rapidly happening in China, which bodes very poorly for the United States. And that is why he tries to alert Donald Trump to the risks this poses. But unfortunately, while he's, trying to do this, the president is livid with Azar, livid with him because, as he says it in the conference call, you know, you're killing me, Alex, you're killing me, you're going to lose me this election, you made me ban the flavorings for e-cigarettes and vaping, and now, you know, my pollsters and my advisors, they tell me I'm going to lose the vapors, and the vapors allegedly are some part of his base, and and he fears that they're going to turn away from him, and he's blaming Azar. Azar already for the potential for him to lose. And that kind of tirade goes on, weirdly enough, uh, while other people in the Oval Office are listening in and Azar is sort of on a, uh, a speakerphone uh, being blasted in while he's being blasted by the president. And Azar tries to say to him, look, we need to talk about uh, about this issue of 
the virus. And the president essentially ends the conversation after Azar explains to him what the virus is. And he says, okay, okay, talk to you later. And hangs up. And it's the end of the call. It'll be a little while longer before the president's national security advisor and his deputy national security advisor, uh, O'Brien and Pottinger, are able to have a presidential briefing and get Trump to understand, as O'Brien puts it, that this is going to be the most important national security uh, event you experience in your presidency. Right. And remember, famously, uh, Woodward reports in his book that Trump is told and seems to understand that this um, disease, coronavirus, can spread by airborne transmission asymptomatically. And yet he persists publicly in downplaying it with lines like it'll be under control just around the corner, miraculously disappear in in the warm weather the the it's hard to sort of for me to understand how you can think in those terms when you when you're being told what is true and then you're acting so contrary to that truth and i was wondering how how you saw him in, in that in those moments you know we saw that again and again uh, throughout the coronavirus pandemic where trump would be informed of of basic facts of the laws of science of you know what is safe what is not safe how this virus works uh, by his experts and and yet a had an inability to synthesize and process that information but b would spit it back out wrong and and with things that are not true to the american public um you know we saw it repeatedly uh as he was promoting magical cure-alls like hydroxychloroquine as he was exaggerating the efficacy of convalescent plasma treatments, as he was talking about other therapies, uh, but also as he talked about, you know, the virus uh, going away when it gets warmer outside or the virus going away if you inject bleach into your body. Uh, it was just one sort of unscientific and, and erroneous statement after another. Let's pivot to the the big lie slash election fraud. There's so much to talk about, and we're going to run out of time. But in respect of the election fraud, big lie allegations, you write that Trump was fully briefed on where things stood um, sort of in the days, hours before the the election, before the, the November election. And Tony Fabrizio, the pollster, Trump pollster, you're quoting, you quote him as saying, the election is on a knife's edge, that the campaigns in Georgia and Arizona were essentially tied, and that Trump could well lose those states as well as other states he won in 2016. And you say he would need to draw a straight flush, which would be five numerically consecutive cards of the same suit to win this election. So he's on notice that that there is no landslide coming either for Biden um, or for for him. Um, do you do you have a sense that at that point he he understood this to be true? And if so, how do we account for um, the origins of of the big life? He knows that this is a knife's edge election. How does the theory of 
massive voter fraud, one in a landslide. How does that, what's the genesis of that? Uh, uh, forgive me, I, I, Phil, if you want to go for it, that's great. I, I was just going to say that it. we learned something interesting about Donald Trump from sources, again, who were reporting and, you know, watching this in real time, not reporting, but watching. And some of these sources told us that the night before the election, President Trump not only knew he was in trouble because he'd been warned repeatedly, but but someone in the White House relayed to the Attorney General that Donald Trump had a plan for election night. And the plan was to simply declare victory by the end of the evening rather than waiting until the next day. And the declaration fit beautifully into the scenario he'd been provided by his expert pollsters. And that was there was going to be this sort of red mirage where everything looked really good for Trump early on. And in the states where they were having to count and sometimes required by law to count the ballots after the election night closed, there was going to be this surge for Biden, but many, many more votes for him. So declaring victory the night of would be very successful because that's how it would look to most Americans who hadn't experienced an election like this one in which so, so, so many had voted remotely through absentee ballots and mail-in ballots. Uh, the fact that he had that plan is fascinating because we then learned that, you know, Rudy standing in the middle of the West Wing, sitting in a at a kind of a card table, is declaring, as some of the votes look bad in swing states for Trump, declaring, just declare victory. Just say we won that state. Just te- go out on, on the television and tell people that we won. So there seemed to be a great deal of, of knowledge that this wasn't going well and very likely that, that Trump would lose. But the hardening of the narrative to try to um, declare victory just got harder and more concrete and more concrete as the weeks went on after election night. You know, the president refuses to concede on November 7th when Pennsylvania is called for Biden and his victory is sort of irrefutable. He refuses to concede when the Electoral College returns and and basically declares as well that Biden is the president-elect. These moments are moments when Trump is shutting out those longtime trusted advisors like Hope Hicks and Bill Barr and Kellyanne Conway, and instead listening to people like Rudy and uh, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, the lawyer who claimed that, you know, the ghost of Hugo Chavez came from Venezuela and and changed the votes for Biden. He's shutting out the the adults and he's only listening to the conspiracy theorists. But, but why, Phil? I mean, is it just a psychological need he has to not consider himself a loser? It's just it's so hard for me who's a person that's not really based in reality half of the time either to understand how you could be so divorced from that, which, you know, the, the, the Christie's, the Cipollone's, the bars, the Hicks, Lindsey Graham's, they're all telling you is the facts on the ground. Yeah. You know, part of it is he doesn't want to be labeled a loser and doesn't want to accept the fact that he lost. But part of it also is he has people, as Carol was saying, like Rudy Giuliani, who are telling him that there's a possibility he can win and here's how. 
that wasn't rooted in fact, of course. There was no, not really any chance for Trump to overturn the election, but when he's presented with an option, with the course of action that you know your friend and lawyer and confidant is telling you uh, could result in you staying in power, you know he was he was enticed to follow that course. But I guess what I'm having trouble with is accounting for the fealty to to Trump in the face of this indisputable indisputable evidence that there was no fraud. For, for Giuliani, for any of these people, I just can't account for that behavior, nor can I account for Trump's accepting the truth of that proposition when all the evidence speaks contrary. Well, you know, we're, we're not in the business of, of explaining his behavior or getting inside his head, rather, um, but we, you know, document in the book just scene after scene after scene where he does uh, pursue these fantastical theories and he does promote uh, what are false conspiracies about the election. Yeah, Carol, one thing before we turn to the January 6th insurrection, we saw in the House Oversight Committee the notes of December 27th, which is a telephone call from Trump to Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, in which Trump is said to have told Rosen, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the R congressman. And then we see this um, email that was written but never sent that if Rosen were to be fired, then the entire senior staff of the Justice Department were going to resign. And that, again, Trump was pressuring Rosen to just simply say that there's voter fraud in Georgia and they'll take they'll take it from from there. Yes, um, it's sort of an insane proposition. And what, what struck me about that reporting, quite good reporting, is that it is um, eerily sort of an echo of everything else that's been reported about Bill Barr's final days in the Attorney General's office and Jeff Rosen's you know, early days as the acting attorney general, you know, that reporting in the past was essentially finding that there was this completely wackadoodle meeting at which uh, there was a, a a proposal for a sort of a, an individual who was a true Trump believer and maybe four to seven rungs below Rosen replacing Rosen uh, so that he could declare the election invalid. And, Rosen was under threat of being removed from office and Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, had to be sort of put into action, <laughs> like a toy action figure to come to the rescue and and insist that this not happen, that this was dangerous and also illegal. Um, so, so it all is of a piece. The president was on the warpath to get whatever he could get. As our wonderful colleague, Amy Gardner, reported very much in real time, the president was pressuring two different Georgia officials about 50 rungs down from the president of the United States to just get me X number of votes, uh, just just find the votes for me that will that will let me win. And, pre- and, and threatening in that kind of mafiosa way, um, you know, you might have some trouble if you don't go along with this. Two things in, in the last minute or two, which is we saw a lot about the 
insurrection. We've seen all the video and the same. But one thing I'd like you to just flesh out a little bit, Phil, if you can, in our remaining minutes is where was Donald Trump during this two hour and a half siege? And what was it that um, everyone around him was trying to get him to do? Because I found that to be a pretty remarkable uh, bit of reporting on your part. Yeah, so we you know, wanted to try to figure out what Trump was doing in that critical period between when the rioters uh, laid siege to the Capitol and when he finally, after 4 p.m. that afternoon, uh, made his statement telling them to go home. And what we found is he was watching television most of that time. He was in the private dining room just off the Oval Office uh, watching the images uh, broadcast on live television. He was liking what he saw, actually. Um, he liked the fact that thousands of his supporters were, um, you know, charging up the steps of the Capitol in a show of force to try to overturn the election results. He liked that they were carrying his flag. He liked that uh, they were wearing red Make America Great Again caps. You know, it, it ultimately turned very violent and he started to realize that, that this was not entirely a, a happy moment. And yet it still took a lot of persuading from his daughter, Ivanka Trump, from Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and from other advisors to convince the president uh, that he had to issue a statement telling his supporters uh, to go home. He ultimately did do that. Um, the, the video, of course, that was taped in the Rose Garden and yet, even as he told them to go home and be peaceful, he also said, we love you, which was giving tacit presidential approval uh, for, you know, what on that day was a violent and lethal insurrection at the Capitol. Yeah. And the thing that was interesting to me was that he's being the White House is being begged to deploy the National Guard and Trump doesn't do that. Who? who how did the National Guard ultimately get deployed. You know, what happens here is is uh, something we wrote a lot about in uh, the paper for the Washington Post, but also wrote in more detail in the book. And there is an argument when the first, you know, the first sort of rush of protesters makes it through the first barricade around the Capitol Police, the Capitol Police Chief uh, Steve Sund realizes he's got a near riot on his hands. He has more protesters than he has officers. He has folks in sort of hand-to-hand combat. He has protesters trying to beat down through a uh, bike barricade and rushing officers. It's, it's so much more violent than anyone could have, I guess, than anybody there imagined it would be. And um, he makes an emergency phone call to the Metropolitan Police Department for reinforcements. But at the same time, he's added to an emergency phone call with two representatives from the Army Secretary. And he says, I really need the National Guard here. I need them immediately. And and the Army Secretary's assistants, two lieutenant generals, um, say that they're not comfortable with sending National Guard. What, what exactly would they be doing? How would that look? National Guard, you know, in front of the Capitol. And this just completely gobsmacks the chief and also the chief of police for the Metropolitan Police Department. They're like, are you kidding me? We have a we have a riot. We have the Capitol under siege. You know, are you are you denying a request for emergency reinforcement? They say, no, 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 let us just go ask our boss. And eventually their boss very soon after authorizes this along with the Secretary of Defense. It just takes a long time for those 
National Guard units to arrive on the Capitol Hill uh, grounds and to be helpful. But I thought also in your reporting, Phil, is Pence who essentially gives the order to the acting secretary of defense to deploy, even though I guess constitutionally he's not the commander in chief. It is he, it seems, who finally says enough's enough and says deploy, not the president. That's right. On that day, because President Trump was effectively AWOL and distracted by watching television, it was the vice president, Pence, who was functioning uh, as the commander in chief who was on the phone with leaders at the Pentagon, who was coordinating with congressional leadership, Speaker Pelosi, uh, Senator McConnell, and others, to try to get the Capitol cleared, uh, to make it safe, and, and to resume the people's business in the joint session of Congress to certify the election. Those were all the things that Pence was doing while he was uh, basically hiding out to protect his own life and that of his family. And what's so interesting sort of constitutionally, of course, is that Absent invocation of the 25th Amendment, which wasn't invoked to have him be the acting president, the the Secretary of Defense and all the others just accepted his orders because they knew that Trump was actually just AWOL uh, in military terms. He was missing in action. And the book is I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's Catastrophic Final Year. Phil and Carol, thanks so much for joining me today. Michael, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Good to talk with you. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.